pot of water and waiting for it to boil. Anybody ever feel that way? You're, 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 you're in a rush. There we go. Some honest people. You're in a rush. Maybe you have that hankering for some Kraft mac and cheese and you need it now. Okay, I'm, I'm there all the time. I need that pot of water to boil quickly. But it seems like that pot of water will never, ever boil. It will never get to a boil so I can never get to where I want to get with my food or whatever it might be. Having the patience to wait for this pot of water to boil sometimes is impossible. So, especially if you're a child. I remember as a child, I couldn't, this was like a lifetime. I, it was like unbelievable how long it took for a pot of water to start boiling. And that's why there's a saying, many of you know this saying uh, by Benjamin Franklin. He said, a watched pot never boils. Thanks, Benjamin. You nailed it. Uh, it's so true. It's so poignant. It rings true to this day. Uh, this is one of those proverbial statements of Benjamin Franklin that he was so good at. Because it seems like the more that you watch that pot, right? The, the, the more that you watch that pot, the more that you wait for that pot to start boiling and you anticipate that water to start boiling, it seems like the longer you have to wait, the longer you have to wait for that to start happening. And, the, and we all know this as well, that when it comes to water, water, when it is 211 degrees, exactly, when it's 211 degrees, water is extremely hot at 211 degrees. No one would disagree. No one would be like, well, it's not that hot. Everyone would agree that water is hot at 211 degrees. If you stuck your hand inside of water at 211 degrees, it wouldn't take that long for you to realize, I gotta get my hand out of that water, right? In fact, you get severe burns. It would injure you in, in, in a very serious way. It's impossible to drink 211 degree water without burning your throat. In fact, if you look into this, bacteria are already starting to uh, be destroyed at 211 degrees. That's how hot it is. But what do we know about that 212th degree? We know that that 212th degree is when water begins to boil. No matter how long water stays at 211 degrees, it will never boil. But if you know this, if you have uh, been listening to many preachers ever, feel like we all use this illustration from time to time, when it hits that 212th degree, when it hits that and crosses that threshold, many of us know that water begins to boil. And that's when you have this amazing process just because of that one degree. And when that happens, water starts to evaporate. It starts to turn into gas again. And, and this is when you ensure that the bacteria is going to die. And, and this is when food can get cooked and, and that it all comes down to that one degree. You know, when we think about this, it, it, does this lessen the former 211 degrees? 
you know, the 212th degree is very important, but that doesn't lessen the importance of the 211 degrees that led up to that because without the 211 degrees leading up to that, there wouldn't have been a 212th degree, right? So this isn't to lessen the, 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 the importance of the 211 degrees that come before it. It's just to emphasize the importance of the magic that happens when that 212th degree comes, that water starts to boil. And tonight, in our study of the restoration movement, we are going to be talking about that 212th degree moment. We're going to be talking about that 212th degree moment in our movement because as we have been talking about the Scottish restorers that, that set the roots in, in Scotland of restorative theology, as we have talked about Barton W. Stone's Last Will and Testament, as we have talked about Thomas Campbell's Declaration and Address, the Restoration Movement was officially hot. It was 211 degrees. It was hot like that water. So hot that we've already talked about that some of the denominational baggage, just like bacteria, was already starting to be taken care of, already started to be uh, boiled out, not boiled yet, but already started to be uh, burned away. However, the restoration movement, even after all of those people, wasn't necessarily at its boiling point yet. It wasn't until the influence of who we have been teasing for the past few weeks, Alexander Campbell. It wasn't until Alexander Campbell and his influence that the movement was brought to a, roll, a rolling boil. This isn't to lessen the importance of the 211 men metaphor that came before him, right? We've, we just made that illustration with water. It doesn't lessen the so quote-unquote metaphorical 211 men that came before him. It just simply emphasizes how much of a difference this one man, just like that one extra degree, made in this movement. Alexander Campbell was that final degree to push the movement over the edge and give the movement what really picked up some steam, boiling water that still boils on to this day, tonight. Before we get into Alexander Campbell and some of the monumental things that he did, let's remember what brought us to this point tonight. I just want to, I just want to mention before we get into our, our, what we've gone through, realize that this is lesson 10 of our study. We are 10 lessons in and we have not taken a, a great amount of time to talk about the Restoration Movement's greatest figure. We're already in week 10 and, and we haven't taken that much time other than a, a moment here or a, a comment here to talk about the figure's greatest or, or the movement's greatest figure. That's because as we have learned thus far in our study, the Restoration Movement is way bigger than just a single man. The Restoration Movement is way, way bigger than just the influence of Alexander Campbell. We started at the beginning talking about the biblical basis for restoration, how all the way back 
to the time of, of the Bible, God expects restoration when things get off the rails. We talked about what the destination is for that restoration. We are restoring the church to nothing less than what God intended for His church to be. We talked about what we have to do in order to restore the church is we have to take a step back and we have to observe all the things that we do in faith and in practice and, and ask the question, is this drifting to the right? Is this drifting to the left? Is this adding or taking away or binding and loosening? Is this what God's expectations are or is this for man? So that was phase one of our study as we introduced the movement to ourselves. The phase two, we, we talked about the foundation of the movement and we went all the way back to the beginning where it really fell off the rails in Rome with all these edicts and making Christianity legalized in the country. We talked about this thousand years of spiritual illiteracy that took place after that. We talked about how without the Reformation there would have never been a restoration. And we, of course, talked about the roots of our movement found in Scotland. And so the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about phase three of our study, the formation of the movement, the formation of our movement that we find starting off with the last will and testament of Barton W. Stone in 1804, followed by Thomas Campbell's declaration and address. That's what we talked about last, last week written in 1809 and so that brings us to our study tonight where we are going to continue to see the formation of our movement We're really going to start seeing it take shape and being formed into what we know it to be the past couple weeks we've been looking at some prolific writings from some of these restoration leaders the last will and testament was such a powerful writing the the declaration and address is it was said to be the, the, the most important religious document since the writing of Revelation. We talked about that quote from a scholar last week. We've really been talking about some transformative documents, some, some writings that are very important to the history of, of Christianity, to, to our history here tonight. But tonight we're not talking about a document. Tonight we're not talking about another document. Tonight. Instead, we're talking about a sermon. We're talking about one single sermon that was delivered in 1816 by Alexander Campbell. This sermon propelled Alexander Campbell into the rest of his life. This sermon, this one sermon, propelled the entire movement. And it, this one sermon determines so much of what we believe here tonight as Christians. And that sermon was Alexander Campbell's Sermon on the Law. Alexander Campbell's Sermon on the Law. Let's remember what we've talked about thus far in our study, if we can get the screen. There we go. Let's talk about what we've talked about thus far in our study. Remember, we've, we've talked about Thomas Campbell and some of their roots in Ireland. Remember when when they got uh, sick of the Presbyterian denomination, they, they were sick of the Presbyterian faith. They were sick of, of, of all of the extra tradition and dogma that had been added to it. They, they were so discontent that they were done with it, right? We talked about how that forced Thomas to move to the United States. We've talked about how 
while he was in Pennsylvania what his son was doing in Glasgow, Scotland, right? While he was in Pennsylvania writing the declaration and address, we know that Alexander was in Glasgow at the University of Glasgow learning from Greville Ewing and learning about uh, the restoration plea. So while he was in Glasgow, we talked about last week, Thomas was in Pennsylvania writing the Declaration and Address. And know this, when it comes to the Declaration and Address, that was published on September 7th, 1809. September 7th, 1809. What you may not know is Alexander, his son, arrived in America that same month. Later on that month, a few weeks later, on September 29th, 1809, Alexander comes to America. So you can imagine how this document, the Declaration and Address that we talked about last week, was so popular. The moment Alexander came to America, this document had already been distributed so many different places, and, and everybody was talking about the Declaration and Address. We've mentioned over and over in our study thus far how amazing it is to see how all of these pieces of the restoration fit together in, into this one puzzle, so to speak, and how all of these different people from all of these different backgrounds have come together in, in agreeing with, with God's Word and God's Word alone. And, and we can see that, obviously, through Alexander and through Thomas's story. Because when we see the Christian association that we talked about last week of Washington, uh, Pennsylvania, that... that helped Thomas draft the declaration and address. You can see that, that very quickly after that declaration was, was put out to the community, they lost all of their licenses to preach because they revoked uh, this Presbyterian faith. And so what happened after they lost their license to preach, they couldn't go and preach in their different congregations anymore. So what they did was was they continued to be together as an association. And what the Christian Association of Washington, Pennsylvania became was simply a group of like-minded believers. It was a group of like-minded believers who agreed on the same things. But if you know something about the Declaration and Address, it was written very, very blatantly that this association was not going to become its own church. They didn't want to become their own church. They didn't want to view themselves as a church. And so instead, they met once a week, the Christian Association of Washington, Pennsylvania. They met once a week to discuss different doctrines and different beliefs. And they begun each session with a sermon. One of the members of the Christian Association would preach a sermon to start things off. I find that really cool. Uh, that they would come together and, and preach to one another. But in early 1810, Thomas invites his son to preach a sermon. Thomas invites Alexander, this you know young kid, his son, to preach a sermon for the Christian Association of Washington, Pennsylvania. And the rest is history, right? When, as soon as he preached a sermon, as, as soon as he got in front of this association and, and preached, they were blown away at his ability to preach God's Word. 
They were blown away at Alexander's knowledge of God's Word. At such a young age, he was 21 or, or so at the time. The fact that he was able to preach God's Word so powerfully and had such a knowledge of God's Word, it, it blew them away at the Christian Association. And he became licensed to preach at that time, and he became the frequent preacher at the association meetings. And then in 1811, the association does the very thing that they blatantly promised they would never do. They become a church. Instead of becoming a Presbyterian church, instead of becoming a, you know, a, a non-denominational church, at the time, the only decision to be made was which denomination you would attach yourself to. And at the time, they couldn't find a better option than the Baptist denomination. And so they officially became a, a church and called themselves the Brush Run Church. The Brush Run Church is something you can look up today, rich, rich things to learn about that congregation. But at the Brush Run Church, Thomas Campbell became an elder, among with a few others, and, and they established four deacons at this Brush Run Church. And Alexander Campbell was the pulpit preacher, obviously, because he was what made the association grow so much with his preaching. And they held their first services as the Brush Run Church on June 16th, 1811. And when they did that, they officially joined the Redstone Baptist Association a couple of years later in 1813. So like we said, they, they, they didn't want to be associated with denominations, but at the time, unless you were associated with a denomination, you had no voice. You had no people that wanted to come and listen because you were invalid in, in, that, in that time. So they associated themselves with the, with the closest thing that they could find at the time, which was the Redstone Baptist Association in 1813. The Presbyterian denomination was, was so off, so estranged from the truth, that the Campbells settled on the Baptist denomination because, like we said a couple times, it was the best option out there at the time. And so when Alexander becomes the preacher of the Brush Run Church, that is the moment that Thomas's importance and Thomas's influence started to diminish compared to Alexander's influence and compared to Alexander's uh, popularity throughout the country. Alexander became more and more popular and his, his popularity never ceased from that point forward. It, it, it continued to grow and grow and grow. The Campbells, as we talked about, were originally Presbyterian, right? In Ireland they were Presbyterian, they moved to America. A lot of the different uh, Restoration leaders came from the Presbyterian denomination. And because of that, because they were originally in the Presbyterian denomination, every one of the Campbells were originally baptized as infants. We know infant baptism. Many of us know of friends and, and know of people in our lives that, that were baptized as infants. Many denominations preach this doctrine of original sin so that because of the sin of Adam, all people inherit that sin. Inherited sin passes from generation to generation. 
And so the Presbyterian denomination obviously taught that. They still teach that to this day. And so the Campbells, obviously because they were once Presbyterian, had only ever been baptized as infants poured uh, water on their head. Okay? But what happened when they started talking about the Declaration and Address and they started talking about uh, these different ways of looking at Scripture and, and how to, to interpret Scripture with commands and examples and necessary inferences. We're going to talk about that one, in one class later. We're going to talk about baptism in the Restoration Movement in a class later as well. But when they started to preach the commands and examples and necessary inferences and stuff like that, they, they started to realize that they had a problem. They started to realize they had a problem with, with this mode of baptism. They started to contemplate the validity of their baptism. Because when they, when they started to examine the Scriptures, they started to realize that the book of Acts, time and time again, shows people who know right from wrong making the conscious decision to be baptized. Not only to be baptized, but to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And so when they start to realize this pattern, this pattern through the Scriptures, they start to ask themselves the question, do we need to be baptized in this way? And ultimately, they obviously saw that they needed to. That God's Word was compelling them to do something that they had never done before. And so sure enough, in 1812, Remember, 1811, Alexander starts to preach. 1813, they start to be associated with the Redstone Baptist Association. In 1812, both Thomas and Alexander go to a Baptist church with a preacher by the name of Matthias Luce, and they ask him to baptize them. This was after they had already gone to a couple of other churches and those churches refused to baptize them. Well, they find Matthias Luce and Matthias Luce says, sure, I'll baptize you. And so, sure enough, they were baptized for the remission of their sins, immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. You see, as we've talked about multiple times throughout this study, restoration is a process. It's a process of, of unlearning all of the wrong things that you have learned. All of the things that have been in, in, influenced on you and, and taught to you that, that simply are not true in God's Word. In order to restore things to the way God intended, it takes a process. It takes time. And we see that from the Campbells themselves. Because when you think about it, when we think back to when Thomas wrote the Declaration and Address, he wasn't even a Christian. We don't think about that much. When we think about Alexander Campbell, we don't think about him not being a Christian. But the fact of the matter is, they preached for many, many years, and they weren't even seen as Christians in God's eyes, because we know that someone puts on Christ after they've been baptized into Christ, right? So it's just interesting to think that here we have Thomas Campbell 
who in the declaration and address we talked about last week was, was teaching such truthful things, but at the end of the day, wasn't even a Christian in God's eyes. After studying the Scriptures, after seeing the pattern revealed through God's Word, both Thomas and Alexander were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. After they discovered they needed to obey the gospel the way God's word says to obey the gospel, they did it. What a powerful lesson to be learned just from that. That here we have these two giants in their communities. These two giants, religious uh, mentors to so many different people. And the moment that they discovered they were off the track, the moment they discovered they were off the rails, they did exactly what it took to get right. Unlike many church leaders before them, that when they discovered they were off the pattern that God revealed, other church leaders and people throughout the Reformation movement and other people throughout the world, when they figure out they're off the rails and they're off track, what do they do? not worried about that. We're not going to worry about that page. We're not going to worry about that command. We're not going to worry about that example or that necessary inference. Instead of becoming more entrenched in their own personal convictions that they had formerly had, we can see from the Campbells that they showed this example of humility. That they were willing to submit to God's word even though it was different than what they had always taught and what they had always preached before them. The Brush Run Church continued for the next few years with Alexander at the helm of the preaching. The Brush Run Church continued to grow and, and continued to make an impact in the community. And he preached for more and more people to follow this example that he had set in being baptized the way God's Word prescribes. He preached more and more on the, on the issue of baptism and how important baptism is and how fundamental baptism is and how baptism is the most fundamental part, the starting point, the, the absolute beginning point of a Christian's walk with God. But we look at the book of Acts chapter 2, the very beginning, the day of Pentecost. They were baptized into Christ. So he preached and more and more people started to be baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of their sins. And as they did that, they were leaving denominationalism and sectarianism behind them. And again, the Campbells, I want to make sure we understand... The Campbells did not accept all of the teachings of the Baptist church. Not even close. The Campbells, even though they uh, align themselves with the Redstone Association, that does not mean they believed all the teachings of the Baptist denomination, or any denomination for that matter. The Campbells used, simply used this name to gain an audience. And with that audience, they were able to restore problems within the denomination. The Campbells never referred to themselves as Baptists. 
They never referred to themselves or identified as Baptists. They simply affiliated with them until they began to find some trouble. They kept on preaching the truth until the Baptist Association started to listen to some of the things they were preaching. Started to listen in on what Alexander was preaching. And then, obviously, the Baptist Association had a problem with him. And they withdrew their support from the Brush Run Church. They withdrew their support from Alexander. And it's because he started to change his views on stuff that they disagreed with. See, once, there, once he starts out disagreeing with the Presbyterians, yeah, come on in. But the moment he starts disagreeing with the Baptists, they're like, get out. And so what we see in Alexander's uh, journey is he, instead of faith being given to a person, he saw faith as something that an individual gains for themselves. Instead of preaching through this lectionary given by the Redstone Association where the Redstone Association assigned what was to be preached, he quit preaching from the lectionary and he started to preach expository lessons straight from God's Word. Instead of the traditional view on the two testaments, the Old and New Testaments, he began to expose not only the cohesion that exists from the testaments, but more importantly, the distinctive differences that are in the Old and New Testaments. And these teachings and methodology inevitably wound up causing strife between the Baptist denomination and Alexander Campbell. And all of this came to a head on August 30th, 1816, when Alexander preached what is called the Sermon on the Law. If any particular moment could be described as the 212th degree moment in the movement, the moment from which it went to be incredibly hot, to the moment it was at a rolling boil. It was the Sermon on the Law delivered by Alexander Campbell in 1816. Look at this quote. Uh, This is from Briggins. We talked about Briggins last week a little bit, uh, a very noted uh, scholar in this restoration movement. He says, Next to the declaration addressed by Thomas Campbell, The most important utterance in Restoration history is the Sermon on the Law by his son Alexander. This sermon was was epic-making. It was the principal cause that led finally to the separation of the Campbells and their followers from the Baptists and the Constitution of Independent Churches of Christ. The position taken by Mr. Campbell in this sermon and generally accepted by those who have entered into the Restoration Movement has from that day been one of the fundamental differences between them and the denominational world. It constitutes the breastworks from from behind which many a battle against sectarianism has been won. It has proved to be an impregnable fortress against which the sectarian world has hurled itself in vain. What a quote there by L.L. Briggins. As he talks about the importance of the Sermon on the Law, this sermon we're talking about tonight. And the sermon that we're talking about tonight was probably not on the things that you probably assume. When you think about the Restoration Movement, when you think about Alexander Campbell, you think about the things that we focus on to this day, 
maybe you would assume that this sermon was on baptism. Or maybe this sermon was on instrumental music. Or maybe this sermon was on women's roles or the Lord's Supper or the fact that there's only one church. And if you have those assumptions, you'd be wrong. This sermon wasn't on any of that. This sermon was way more fundamental than any of those topics. This sermon was as simple as it gets. As Campbell started to explain and started to look at the two testaments, old and new. This sermon was solely devoted to the goal of examining the two testaments and defining exactly what the church's relationship should be to each one. It started to ask the question, what, what commands are binding today? Well, if this command is binding today, what does that mean for the other commands? Are they not binding? They started asking questions like, which testament do we use for our faith and for our life and for our practices today? And every one of these questions were embraced head on in this sermon, the Sermon on the Law by Alexander Campbell. The basis of this sermon is found in Romans 8, verse 3. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 8 and verse 3. In Romans 8, 3, Paul says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. After setting the tone of the sermon with this passage in the thought that that the law could not do something because it was weak in some way. Well, that necessitates that there is a law that isn't weak. And so Campbell starts out by saying, in order, excuse me, before that quote, he says, in order to elucidate, to explain, that's what that means, I had to look up the word elucidate to have it explained just to find that the definition of elucidate is explained. There you go. In order to elucidate and enforce the doctrine contained in this verse, we shall scrupulously observe the following method. Point number one of the Sermon on the Law. He says, We shall endeavor to ascertain what ideas we are to attach to the phrase, the law in this and similar portions of the sacred scriptures. When he says the law in Romans 8 and verse 3, he's saying, what does the law mean in this passage and in scriptures all around the Bible? Point number two was to point out those things which the law could not accomplish. What exactly does Paul talk about? What's he talking about with this law not accomplishing something? That was point number two. Point number three, to demonstrate the reason why the law failed to accomplish those objects. Point number four, to illustrate how God has remedied those relative defects of the law. And then lastly, point number five, in the last place, to deduce such conclusions from these premises as must obviously and necessarily present themselves to every unbiased and reflecting mind. That was the five points of the Sermon on the Law. 
And with the remainder of the sermon, he would fully expound on these five goals and implement the theology that comes from these statements. In point number one, when he talks about ascertaining what the law means, in point number one, he continues to expound by by asking what exactly is this referring to? Because when you look at the New Testament multiple times, you have some conflicting messaging. Because he points out Jesus himself says that the book of Psalms is law. In John 10.34, Jesus calls Psalms the law. But we know that Jewish tradition already had broken up what Old Testament doctrine was. They had already broken up that there was the law, there was the prophets, and there were the Psalms. You can see Jesus say that very thing in Luke 24 and verse 44. Jesus designates the three different types that the Jewish tradition had already taken to. So what what does it mean by the law? Is this the law of Christ? Is this the law of Moses? Is this some other law? What, what, What law are we talking about in Romans 8 and verse 3? So whenever we look at the scriptures and try to understand what is binding, what is not binding, we have to understand what Campbell was saying is, I have to know what Christianity, what is binding on Christianity in God's word? That was the question that he was trying to answer in point one. In point two, when he's talking about to point out the things that the law could not accomplish, what does that mean? How could the law that God himself wrote be insufficient in any way? How could God's law come short in some way? And so in this point, Campbell talks about in this sermon, he talked about how the law, no matter how good it was, how thorough it was with its 613 commands, Campbell starts to describe how that law would never make a person righteous. That law would never bring life to a follower of it the way the law of Christ brings righteousness and brings life to the individual follower. Look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 21. It it blatantly states that the old law cannot bring righteousness. It cannot bring life to the follower. His point was that if the old law could provide righteousness in life, then what did Jesus' sacrifice mean? If the old law could bring life, then who cares about what Jesus did? Why did he do it? It was vain and without purpose course we know it wasn't and we know that Jesus did need to die so that we could have righteousness in life point number three when he's trying to understand why the law failed well it says it right there in the verse because of the flesh because of the flesh of the humans in charge of keeping the law it was no way ever going to be fulfilled because mankind is too imperfect too flawed too weak and the realization that meritorious salvation, meritorious, meriting, earning, working towards earning or deserving your salvation was never going to be something humans could do. Point number four as he starts talking about this sermon. He was trying to understand uh, what the law of Christ did to remedy 
those certain weaknesses the old law had? What was the law of Christ doing differently that the law of Moses didn't do? He tried to understand that and talk about that. Point number five. Well, what are the conclusions of all these points? The conclusions of all these points mean that for Christians, for followers of Christ, the Old Testament is no longer binding. It is weak. It falls short. It is not what the law of Christ is. And that should therefore shape our view of Scripture. It should therefore dictate how we view Scripture when we look at the Old and New Testaments. And we know the results of this sermon was probably probably not well received by the Baptist denomination. Right? So what happens is those who were in the Baptist denomination of the, of the Redstone Association we've talked about, they started to just say, well, Alexander, you're completely diminishing the, the, the role of the Old Testament. You're completely diminishing what the Old Testament means in order to validate the New Testament. And this couldn't be further from the truth. This wasn't Campbell's goal. Campbell's goal wasn't to diminish the Old Testament. Instead, he was trying to show how the Old Testament points us to Christ in the New Testament. He was trying to show how the Old Testament prepared us for Christ, foreshadowed Christ, paved the way for Christ. And now that Christ has come, the old law has been done away with. And we see this all throughout the New Testament, do we not? In Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, Paul would say, For whatever things were written before time were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures may have hope. Whatever was written before time was written for our learning. How do we understand Hebrews 11 if we don't have the Old Testament to look at? How do we understand certain things when they talk about Abraham and when they talk about Moses? We have to have the Old Testament for our learning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. In Colossians chapter 2, and verse 14, Paul says, And having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And lastly, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13 probably most emphatically says, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The New Testament is very clear on what is binding to Christian. The Old Testament is far from meaningless. Campbell wasn't trying to say it's meaningless. And the way we know it's not meaningless is because Christ says, I did not come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill the law. And so once the law was fulfilled, it no longer served the purpose of salvation and redemption. It had no reason to, because Christ fulfilled it. And since Christ fulfilled the law, it was wiped out as a requirement. It was taken out of the way. It was nailed to the cross. It was made obsolete. And since the old law is obsolete, its time has vanished away. Tonight, as we think about this sermon on the law, we may look at it and think, well, duh. Right? 
We may look at this Sermon on the Law by Alexander Campbell and how he distinguished the Old and New Testaments and, and explained how the Old Law has been done away with and the New Law is what we are binding and, and what judges us and all those different things. We may look at that and say, why is this such a big deal? Why is this the most important moment next to the Declaration and Address in all of Restoration history? Why, why is the Sermon on the Law such a big deal? This is a given. I've known this since I was 10. Maybe you're thinking that tonight. But what you don't realize is it's a big deal because the way that you understand the Old and New Testaments tonight is largely a result of the sermon that was preached 206 years ago by Alexander Campbell. It's largely in part because after this message was preached, after this sermon was preached, it was it was distributed all around the United States. It was publicized. It was dictated and sent out all across the nation. And this sermon was passed on for decades and decades until it became the consensus of the only biblical way to view the relationship between the Old and New Testament. This sermon was the launching point for Campbell. And it was probably received just the way you would imagine. Those who were seeking the truth loved it. This is what I've been waiting for. And those who were not seeking the truth absolutely hated it. And in the meantime, it caused a lot of heartache for the Redstone Association. Tonight, the Sermon on the Law, given in 1816 by Alexander Campbell, the Sermon on the Law shapes how we understand and learn from Scripture today, to this very day. Alexander's sermon all those years ago still rings true tonight. And I hope tonight we take away the same exact message that our brothers and sisters over 200 years ago took from this Sermon on the Law. And that message is how thankful we should be that we are under the law of Christ. The same message tonight is what the message Alexander was trying to preach in 1816. How thankful we should be to find ourselves under the law of Christ instead of the law of Moses. You know, I don't know if you've noticed this. I know a lot of Christians, unfortunately, that go through their everyday life burdened. Somehow, along the way, they have convinced themselves that, that living out the law of Christ is some sort of weight that is too overwhelmingly difficult to carry. Sometimes we feel that we aren't enough to live up to the expectations God has put before us in Scripture. We convince ourselves that we are not strong enough to measure up. And when we do this, it's because we read passages like Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48 where Jesus says, Therefore you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
well, I can't do that. Maybe it's because we read passages like 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15 where Peter says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct because it is written, Be holy for I am holy. Be holy as God is holy? I can't do that. Maybe it's because we read scriptures like James chapter 1 and verse 4 where James says, But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing. Maybe it's because we read passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1 where, where Paul says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the Spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness? Cleansing myself from all impurity? I can't do that. And so we look at these passages, we look at scriptures like this, and, and scriptures that call on us to be perfect, to be holy, to lack nothing, to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness, and to perfect holiness. We start to realize just how imperfect we are. Just how unholy we are. Just how much we do lack just how filthy our lives can be and how we are perfecting just about everything but holiness in our lives. And then on top of that, I'm supposed to measure up to the fullness of the stature of the measure of Jesus Christ himself? It makes us feel unworthy. It makes us feel inadequate. It makes us feel like we're not enough. And you know what? That's exactly what it's supposed to make you feel. That's exactly what the life of Christ is supposed to make you feel. That you, that Ben is not enough. That Ben is inadequate. That Ben is unworthy. You can say the same about yourself tonight. Well, good grief, Ben. I didn't know I was going to come to a Wednesday night Bible class and be told I was not worthy. Chill out. Well, when you look at the scriptures, if you come away with any message but that, you've misunderstood the whole thing. When we look at the scriptures and we look at the life of Christ, that's all we can come away with. Is that I'm unworthy. I'm inadequate. You turn to the book of Romans, chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul says, There is none righteous. How many? No, not one. Romans 3 and verse 10. No one is righteous. Okay. Romans 3 and verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay. Not righteous. Falling short. Man. When it comes to mankind, none of us, not a single one of us tonight, in and of ourselves, is worthy. Not a single one of us tonight, in and of ourselves, is adequate. Not a single one of us in and of ourselves, is perfect or holy or cleansed in any shape of the word. 
You know what the beauty is about the law of Christ? The beauty about the law of Christ is that we are not justified by what we do and what we are. We are justified by what He did and who He is. If you look at the very next verse in Romans 3 and verse 24, what does it say? Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The beauty of the law of Christ is right there. Romans 3 and verse 24. As Christians, we aren't justified by how spotless a lamb we can come up with. We're justified by the spotless lamb who was crucified for us. The law of Christ is not about being perfect. It's about realizing just how imperfect you are. And that knowledge bringing you to your knees in gratitude that Christ makes you perfect anyway. Alexander Campbell's Sermon on the Law set the precedent that we continue to operate under today. That our faith and our practices are judged from the New Testament and the New Testament alone. And this very precedent will continue to matter more and more as we continue to dive into the different issues that the Restoration Movement faced. This idea that the Old Testament has been done away continually comes up time and time again throughout our study of the Restoration Movement. In our study of the Restoration Movement, we've talked about Barton W. Stone. We've talked about the Campbells, Thomas and Alexander, and how the Stones were, or or the people following Stone and and the people listening to Stone's message, they they were over in Kentucky and Ohio. And we talked about how at the time, scholars tend to think that there were about 20,000 people listening to Stone's message of the Last Will and Testament. So you have 20,000 over here and in the Campbells in Pennsylvania and areas like that. Thousands were being converted. What we're going to see next in our movement is them coming together. We're going to see Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell joining hands in unity. And what we're going to find out was the absolute greatest thing happened to the church with Stone and Campbell united. But that is to be continued. Let's go to God in a word of prayer. Our dear most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for tonight, our study. Pray that it will be a blessing to our life as we go out into our lives to think about how blessed every single Christian here tonight is that we are under the law of Christ. The law of liberty, the law of grace, the law that understands our weaknesses and allows our Savior to step in our place. We pray that we can go out and live accordingly, understanding how blessed every one of us is.